All right, guys, welcome again. We are continuing our series this morning called Hope Came Down. And really what we're doing in this series is we're getting an aerial view of the incarnation. In other words, we're examining who Jesus is so that when we celebrate that he came to earth, we can really rejoice about that. We can really get excited about that. Isn't it true that when we get the aerial view, it helps make sense of the particulars on the ground? This is true in sort of an interdisciplinary way. I was reading a book uh, this week called The Art of Possibility. It's by this uh, great guy. His name's Benjamin Zander, and he is the conductor of the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra. He really hammered this home for me. He's talking about music in this quote, and this is what he says about the importance of an artist when they're playing a particular line or particular stanza in a piece of music, having the entire piece of music in view. It says, when one rises above the work to see the long line, the overarching structure, one can see and hear a new meaning, often far beyond the meaning viewed from the ground. And it is only when the essential shape of the musical work is revealed that its true passion can be fully experienced. So with a piece of music, he's saying the violinist, when they're playing their particular part, their part will be played better and experienced more fully when that violinist has the entire piece of music in view. And in a similar way, when we understand the story arc of the Bible, that the entire Bible is about Jesus and that he's an amazing person, when we look at the incarnation at Christmas, we are able to fully experience the incarnation. And so what we're doing is we're going through six verses in three weeks about the person of Jesus. One of the most glorious aerial shots of who Jesus is and sort of the story arc of the Bible. So we're looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. It says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is God's word. So you'll notice verse 17 and 18, which we'll be looking at today. There's this theme of Jesus being in control. He's holding all things together. He's the head of the body the church, the firstborn from the dead, that he might be preeminent in everything. So what we're going to do is just kind of take that thread of the passage and meditate in three points on Jesus' absolute control. Jesus is in control of everything. 
Our lives often feel out of control. His life never feels out of control because he is over all things. So we're looking at three ways that Jesus has demonstrated his absolute control. That Jesus holds everything together, that Jesus leads the church, and that Jesus rose from death. So first of all, Jesus holds everything together. Verse 17 again. He is before thing, all things, and in him all things hold together. This is a really important verse for us to understand the Christian worldview. First of all, the text says that he is before all things. In theological terms, this is describing the aseity of Jesus. Aseity means his isness. He is unlike us in the sense that he just exists. We believe that Jesus is the uncaused cause of everything. So we are not Darwinian evolutionists. We don't have this question in our mind, where did everything come from? We don't believe that something came from nothing. We believe that someone created everything. We don't know exactly the particulars of how he did that or what happened, but we do know from Genesis that Jesus created the universe through his word. Jesus is in a category by himself. He just is, and he created everything. We also learn in this text that we are not deists. So the definition of a deist is that God exists as an uncaused first cause, ultimately responsible for the creation of the universe, but does not interfere directly with the created world. So you might have heard this watch illustration to describe a deist. A deist is somebody who believes that God sort of wound up the watch of the universe and then just set it down and he hasn't touched it since. He's just letting the universe run on its own. But we see something very different than deism in this passage we see that Jesus is intimately involved with the creation. That he actually holds everything together. In other words, this is what we believe as Christians. Jesus is both the creator and the king of the material universe. He created it out of nothing and he sustains it in the same way that he created it, by the word of his power. This shows his amazing care and his amazing control. There's a parallel passage to this passage in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. It says this of Jesus. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Think about that. Amazing. How does the sun come up? Jesus tells the sun to come up. 
Why does the grass grow? Jesus tells the grass to grow. Of course, it's invisible to the human eye, but we can see it by faith as it's illuminated through the word of God. And Jesus does this not by exerting great energy, like it's like, man, this is really hard, holding the universe together. He's not exhausted and sweating. He's sitting back in a recliner telling the universe what to do. It's not hard for him. He is in a totally different category. It is impossible to have a thought that is too high for Jesus. He is that amazing. But think about how crazy this is. I think this sort of bothers us a little bit initially. We're like, wait, Jesus is literally in control of everything. He holds everything together. And I think it starts to bother us because we start to go down the road like, well, that means he could prevent natural disasters from happening. He could prevent disease and death. And we start to get frustrated because we're like, why are you controlling the world the way that you're controlling the world? This doesn't make sense. But in another sense, we're comforted by it, right? And I hope that those questions will begin to be swallowed up by a greater sense that this is amazingly good news. Here's why I'm saying this is amazingly good news. Who would you rather have be in control of the universe than Jesus? Even though we don't understand why he controls the universe the way that he does, and if you find somebody who thinks they know, you should run away from them. But what we do know is that the hands that were crucified to save us are the hands that hold the universe. Isn't that amazing news? We may not understand, but when we look at the cross and what Jesus has done for us there, we can trust that even though we don't understand His purposes are good. I was thinking about this. I was thinking back around this time of year when I was a kid. We always used to make trips from Indiana to Iowa for Christmas. And so many times during that period of time, there was tons of snow and ice and winter storms. And we were the type of family like, we're going. We're going to go to Iowa, and we're going to have Christmas in Iowa, dang it, whether you like it or not. So we would all pile in the van, and I remember on multiple occasions, we're driving down either Interstate 74 or Interstate 80, whatever it may be, and cars are just starting to slide off the road. And I remember going through this enough times that I was always so glad, and I actually would be relaxed in the back of the van, because my dad was driving, My dad's a farm kid who grew up in Iowa, was driving vehicles starting about age 12. And so the dude just knows how to maneuver a big van. And so I just remember him, he would actually say like, why are these people hitting their brakes? Like if you hit your brakes on the ice, you're gonna slide into the ditch. So we would literally be driving down the road and people are sliding off 
all around us, and we're just like moving. And my dad's actually like hitting the gas, like just moving around these people. And like everyone's in the ditch in the rearview mirror. We never once went in the ditch. And I was always just so glad that my dad's hands were the ones that were on the wheel. Because I knew I know my dad. I can trust my dad. And because I can trust my dad, I'm glad that he's in control. And I think in a similar way, I was certainly glad I wasn't driving. And I think in a similar way, we can be thankful that Jesus is in control, even though we don't always understand why he does what he does, because he is a person that we can trust. If you're having trouble with this, this is where I encourage you to fix your gaze. In your time of suffering, in your questioning, Look at the cross. Just look at the cross. It will answer every question that you have in your suffering. Because you will see on the cross that Jesus loves you in an unfathomable way. You might not get your questions directly answered, but his love will overwhelm your questions. You will be flooded with peace. And on the other side of that, as you go to him over and over again, you will be so thankful that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. So we see Jesus' control in him holding all things together. We also see Jesus' control in his leadership of the most successful movement in world history. You know what the most successful movement in world history is? It's the church. Jesus shows his control in his leadership of the church. First half of verse 18 said, And he is the head of the body, the church. Now, there's this interesting metaphor used throughout the Bible, specifically in this passage, and also maybe most notably in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, of Jesus being the head and the church being his body. So in other words, Jesus is the control center, and without the head, the body's dead, right? And so Jesus is the leader of the church, and the church depends on its life for him. Now, 1 Corinthians 12 specifically dives into the different spiritual gifts, and so it says some people are the hands, some people are the feet, some people are the knees, and you even got a couple big toes in the room, right? Everyone has their role, but we would all say the most essential part of the body is the head. The head tells the body when and where to move. And in the life of our church, Jesus is unquestionably the leader of our church. 
he is the one leading us. You might be asking the question, it's not immediately obvious to you how he is leading the church. And again, in the same way that you question his control in the circumstances of your life, you also begin to question his leadership in the church. There's 2.3 billion Christians in the world. Think how many local assemblies there are. Jesus is the leader of all of them. I think our first reaction to his leadership in the church should be one of humility because we get overwhelmed with our homework and our jobs. He has a big responsibility. So I think, first of all, we need to kind of take a step back. But second of all, I think the primary way that we see Jesus' leadership in the church is through patient care and teaching of the word by the power of the Holy Spirit. So get this. Jesus created the universe through the word. Jesus upholds the universe by the word. Jesus leads the church through the word. This is what that demonstrates to me in kind of an incredible way as I've been meditating on it. Jesus is so, so kind and so patient with us. Here's what he's done. Rather than getting out a megaphone and yelling at us from heaven directives, he has actually embodied his word through his people in the life of local congregations in literally every language in the world so that people are able to hear his word and get his gospel and his directives for their life in a way that they can most purposefully understand it. That's why Jesus said, it's better if I leave and I send the Holy Spirit so that every tongue, tribe, and nation on the face of the planet would have a witness to Jesus' amazing grace, glory, and goodness contextualized directly to them. Okay? Imagine the scene. Melissa and I are about to to go see Handel's Messiah for the third year in a row. You should go see it. It's awesome at the Basilica, okay? You go to a great concert venue, here's what's true. Wherever you're sitting in that place, you will be able to hear that music as if those people are only playing for you. Because the acoustics of the entire place are designed in such a way that the music comes into your ear at the perfect volume. You know you've been places where that's not true. And so when you go to places where that is true, it's an amazing experience because you feel like the music is all around you and it's at the perfect volume. And you're able to be at peace because of that. And in a similar way, Jesus has given us his word, contextualized to our language. He's given us local teachers 
to preach that word, and he's given us each other to encourage one another in that word because it's his way of showing his leadership as our head and by caring for us in the most intimate way possible. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that blow your mind? You begin to see that it takes about as much control and authority to lead the church as it did to create the universe because we're a rowdy bunch. And you also begin to see Jesus' incredible patience with us. I love this verse in Romans chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. And I think this is part of the reason that God has given us his word in the form that he has. It says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is to be revealed. Here's why I read that verse. Sometimes we want Jesus to get with the program. We want him to speed up his second coming. We want him to solve all of the problems in our local church and in the global church now. Here's why Jesus is leading the church the way that he is. He is far more kind than any of us. He wants every person in the church and on planet Earth to be led to repentance. If you don't see his power at work in the local church, it's because his kindness is so apparent. He is so patient with us. I want you to know if you're living in sin, you're living apart from the life of the church, you've turned your back on God. He has not turned his back on you. He is so patient with you. He has been so patient with me and so kind to me and to you. But he wants you to repent. And I have to tell you, as your pastor, it will not always be this way. Jesus is coming back. Not to give a message of grace the next time, but to destroy those who have opposed him. He's coming with wrath. And so don't take his leadership in the church and his kindness to you personally as a license to sin. You have to see that it's an opportunity to turn away from your godless life and turn to a godly life. And this is a great context for you to do that because every week we open up the Bible and Jesus leads us through his word. Okay, so Jesus shows us his control by holding everything in the universe together, by his leadership in the local church, and lastly, in that he rose from death. Guys, Jesus rose from death. You know he's not dead anymore, right? He's alive. 18b says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Okay, so 
the first verse we look at, it said he's before all things. Here it says he's the beginning. There's a different emphasis here. It's not talking about his isness or his aseity in this passage. It's talking about how Jesus is the beginning of a new humanity. Humankind fell in Adam and Eve. They chose to rebel against God, and since then, every person who's ever been born has been screwed up by sin, except for Jesus. He is an entirely different kind of person. He lived, he died in our place for our sin, and he is the firstborn from the dead in the sense that he's the first person to get a resurrected body. There have been people in human history who have died and risen again. It's a historical fact. But Jesus is the first person to die for the sins of humanity and to rise again and actually get this promised resurrected body. And the, descri- the Bible describes him as the first fruits. In other words, what it's describing is that we too will be risen from the dead. It's a promise. What happened to Jesus will happen to followers of Jesus who put their trust in him. And then the text says something pretty remarkable. It says the reason that Jesus came to earth, lived this perfect life in our place, died for us on the cross, and rose from death, is that in everything he might be preeminent. Preeminent means supreme or superior in a class by himself. Well, I got a question for you. Wasn't Jesus already in a class by himself? He had a pretty good resume. Eternally existing, creating the universe, holding everything together. Why did this make him even more supreme than supreme? Here's what the text is saying. He was supreme. Then he did all that. Now he's supreme. How so? In the same way that a man would be more supreme in a woman's eyes if he rescued her from a terrible situation that she was in. So think of the movie Braveheart, right? Everybody likes Braveheart, William Wallace, that whole thing, okay? You remember when his, I believe it's his girlfriend, I don't know, maybe they were married at the time. Remember when she gets captured and he goes to take her back? It's like she loved him. He's William Wallace. He's the man. Like he was supreme. But then he goes around the, the town and he like kills everybody and he's just wrecking people and he's sword fighting and he's this swashbuckling hero. And then he's supreme. He's amazing because of something that he did for her. He rescued her from her plight. Jesus is now supreme in our eyes in a brand new way because of what he has done for us. He has risen from from death. Why did he die? He died because he was saving you and me. Whose sin did he die for? He never had any sin. Jesus didn't risk his life for us. Jesus gave his life for us. So that in a brand new way, he is preeminent. 
Scripture says that the angels long to look into what we see. They know his supremacy as the reigning, ruling king of the universe, but they will never know his supremacy as their personal Lord and Savior. You have the opportunity like no one or nothing else in all of creation to know Jesus as your rescuer. Now for what purpose has Jesus rescued us? So that we can sit back and say, I've been rescued. How wonderful. Yes, and God has this incredible purpose for your life. You have been bought with a price, Scripture says. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And 2 Corinthians 5.15 says it this way. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus lived, died, and rose again so that you would be freed from living for yourself. What a miserable life to live for yourself, to turn in on yourself and seek to serve your selfish desires. Isn't it true that as you serve your selfish desires, your desires only grow and they only get darker and they only get worse and you only get more miserable? He died and rose again so that you could live a brand new life. So that your life would be filled with possibilities for his kingdom and work to do for his gospel. That you would leave the mission of making yourself happy and you would instead go on the mission of bringing him honor and praise. Would you join me on that mission? It's the most exciting life that you could possibly live counterintuitively to be under the control of Jesus. He wants to be your Lord. And when he controls your life, you will be infinitely happy. Let's pray. Jesus, wow. We just scratched the surface of who you are. And we stand in awe Forgive us for having small thoughts of you. For having small dreams and ambitions for our own lives. For trying to wrestle control away from you, from criticizing your leadership role over the universe and in the church and in our own individual lives. God, help us to surrender. We see the freedom, but we're so tempted to want to hold on to our sin and our past and be afraid. Help us to take that step of faith. And as we do that, Jesus, would you fill us with such joy that we just get addicted to this life of giving up control, the illusion of control, and living under your kingship and love. In Jesus' name. Amen.